Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to the weekly deep dive episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays two times a week. I host these sessions live on Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments, and at your convenience, you can now listen here. But first, this week's episode is brought to you by the Family Finance Mom Economic Workshop Series. So many of you have asked for more formal education on specific topics, and now you have it. The Economic Workshops are a series of six hour-long sessions each on a specific economic topic to grow and deepen your financial and economic literacy and give you the confidence to make solid financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your future. If you've ever wondered, is this a good time to buy a house, change jobs, save more, invest more, start a new business? Should I be taking a big risk right now or maybe I need to be more cautious? Understanding how the economy works as well as the state of the current economic environment as a whole, can help you form more informed decisions on all of the above. The Economic Workshop Series will arm you with all the economic know-how you need to do exactly that. The first workshop, What is a Recession?, covered the economic cycle and how recessions are a natural part, and fortunately the shortest part, of the cycle. We talked about leading and lagging economic indicators, past recessions, and more. The full replay is available now. The second workshop, What is Economics? Scarcity, the Free Market, Supply and Demand, will be live February 23rd and is open for enrollment now. You can participate in the live workshop or catch the replay at your convenience. Each workshop includes 45 minutes of instruction followed by your questions. Choose the topics you want to learn more about or save money and get all six sessions with the Economic Workshop Bundle, including immediate access to January's workshop replay on recessions. Visit FamilyFinanceMom.com or the link in today's show notes for details. Hey, Family Finance Moms, happy Wednesday. Welcome. For those who are new, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom. And twice a week, I hop on here on Instagram for about half an hour to answer as many of your personal finance, economic, and market news questions as I can in the next 30 minutes. I do start with the questions that people submitted in the box last night, but if you're here watching live, you're always welcome to comment and ask questions as we go along. Um, a little bit of irony here, this all started basically about three years ago, so kind of right around... Um, when the pandemic shut everything down and sent all of us home and my kids got sent home from school and people much like now, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of um, financial concerns and people had lots of questions and I had limited time to answer them. And so I started this format as a way to help address as many of those questions as I could, reach the most people and as a as efficient a manner as I possibly could because with three kids home from school and having to do remote schooling and all of that, my time was limited too. And basically it's just carried on ever since and it's for the same purpose still, to address your financial concerns, to empower you with financial literacy, 
um, so that you can make the best decisions for you and your family, kind of no matter the economic or financial environment. So with all of that being said, let me go ahead and start with the questions uh, that were submitted in the box last night. Um, first question, and I will say just to start out with, there's still a lot of concern over the banking situation, the stability of the banking situation, and a lot of the questions I got last night are still kind of related to that. So first question, should all Americans keep emergency fund cash at home? Here's what I will say is that the FDIC, which is the Federal Depository Insurance Corporation that was created in 1933, following the collapse and the instability of the American banking system, kind of in the early 1900s and then at a fever pitch sort of at the outset of the Great Depression, um, it was set up to inspire confidence and restore stability to the American banking sector. Since it was created, not a single dollar of insured deposits have been lost. So, so long as you are an individual with less than $250,000 per depositor per account at whatever bank that you are at, your funds are fully insured so long as that institution is an FDIC insured institution. And any bank that you go to in the footnotes of their um, disclaimer will indicate if that is the case. The, the type of account that you are in will indicate if that is the case. And if that is the situation, in the event that your bank failed today, state regulators would take it over, they would hand it over to the FDIC within the course of, you know, in the case of what happened over the weekend, you know, the bank shut down on Friday, by Monday morning, people had access to $250,000, up to $250,000. Um, so I personally am keeping all of my money in the bank. I am not shoving money under my mattress. I am not hoarding wads of cash in a safe or anything like that. Um, now, if you are a business and, you know, meeting, and I guess some people don't fully understand like why people would have more than $250,000 in the bank. Think of like a business that has thousands of employees that has to meet payroll every two weeks. Their one payroll is likely more than $250,000. And so they need more cash than that on hand, accessible in a checking account. That is why businesses have more than that. And in that scenario, those people have to do, have to take more, um, you know, cautious risk management efforts and managing their accounts and spreading it out and diversifying kind of their counterparty exposures. And they're probably having risk managers doing a lot more scrubbing of bank balance sheets and making sure that their banking partners are secure. Because if, for example, their bank shut down today and they didn't have access to more than $250,000 within 48 hours, they're not going to, for example, make payroll this week. So that is a very different scenario than you are, you know, if you're an individual with under $250,000 in the bank. So for everybody who's afraid of keeping money in the bank, I will tell you that's what I'm doing. Um, you know, and if you have more than $250,000 in any one account, I would definitely recommend kind of spreading it out um, because there's, there's no risk to that, but there is potentially risk if you had more than that that exceeded the insurance coverage limit. Now, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury did step over, up over the weekend, and they said that in the case of the two banks that failed, they would backstop all of the deposits, 
That doesn't necessarily mean that they will do that for the next bank failure that comes along. So I wouldn't count on that is sort of what I would say. Um, but they have also, in order to prevent any additional bank failures, set up uh, where banks can have access to funds through the Federal Reserve in order to meet any um, like acceleration of withdrawals in kind of the current uncertain environment. So that should create additional stability as well. Um, but that's kind of my two cents on, do I think that people need to like keep a bunch of cash at home? Um, I just addressed this question. It says, if you have more than 250K in the bank, should you diversify banks? I would say yes, it can't hurt. Um, and it definitely doesn't hurt to kind of diversify your exposure. And it definitely doesn't hurt to make sure that the money you have is insured. Okay, next question. Is money in investment accounts insured, like a 401k, an IRA, or a brokerage? As an example, all my money with Vanguard, is it risky? So this is an excellent question. Um, money at brokers is not FDIC insured. However, brokers have something else known as SIPC coverage. So SIPC coverage is similar to FDI, F, FDIC coverage. It covers up to $500,000 worth of investable assets and including up to $250,000 in cash in any of those accounts. It is not there to protect you against investment losses. If you make an investment decision and lose money, you lose money. It is designed to protect you in the event that your broker fails. So if your broker goes belly up, your account is still custodied under your name. Typically in most of those situations, the broker, those assets, those accounts are gonna be assumed by some surviving entity. Usually like a bigger bank will take it over, for example. Um, but in the event that like it totally dissolved and there was nothing left, um, your assets would be protected up to $500,000. So that being said, most people over time, um, as you, you know, are saving for retirement, you're gonna exceed that limit. So it is important to make sure that your you know, assets are brokered and custodied somewhere that you feel comfortable with, that has a solid reputation, that is well-established, that isn't some sort of fly-by-night, um, you know, newer broker. There's, there's a reason that some brokers are more reputable and more established than others, um, because you don't necessarily want that unnecessary risk of, is this person going to be around, you know, is this entity going to be around in 20 years when I need these assets for retirement? Um, but just to, to let you guys know, there is similar coverage that is designed to protect you to some extent in the event that something were to happen to your broker. Um, but it is not designed to kind of insure you against investment losses based on your investment decisions. So I hope that that helps. Um, okay. Uh, next question. This is a two-parter. I need to do a car lease buyout. Should I use emergency money for a larger down payment or borrow at this higher rate and keep a high yield savings fund? So here is kind of the way that I think about this. I think about it in terms of opportunity costs. If the money is sitting in a savings account earning, say, 4%, which at that's kind of the max of where most high yield savings accounts are right now, um, and you're gonna have to borrow in order to buy the lease down, you know, buy out your lease at call it 7%, which is kind of around where many uh, car loans are at right now. Um, 
which is better, right? If you can take cash earning 4% and save you from having to pay 7%, that typically is the better option to use some of that cash in order to either get a lower interest rate or avoid having to pay that interest at all. Um, because the trade-off, right, is a net 3%. Um, you're still, you know, if you kept that money in the bank, it's earning 4%, but you're paying an additional 3% out on interest every single month. So you're better off kind of using that cash. So long as you are comfortable and you don't think that you're gonna have a need for that cash in call it the next six to 12 months. Given everything that's going on in the world, I'd be a little hesitant, for example, of depleting your emergency fund, your cash savings entirely. Um, so I would kind of balance that a little bit, but from a purely financial perspective, um, I'm assuming that your car loan is gonna cost you more in interest than what you're earning on the savings. You're better off using the cash to pay for that. So. That's kind of the way to think about those this or that type questions. Uh, next question. Could you explain in more detail what inverted yield curve means? Okay, so if you saw all those pictures of the yield curve over the course of 2023 that I shared in my stories yesterday, every single one of those is in an inverted yield curve. An inverted yield curve is what happens when you have shorter term treasury rates, so treasuries that are say three month, six month, two year maturities with higher interest rates than longer term treasury bonds like 10 year and 30 year treasury bonds. In a normal environment, a normal yield curve slopes up into the right. Why? Because with more time comes more um, inflation risk, more rate risk, and so typically in a normal economic environment, you pay more, pay higher interest rates for longer maturities. Why? Because you're locking in that interest rate for a longer period of time, more unexpected things could happen, rates could move more, there could be more volatility over the course of 30 years. And so you're paying for that risk and it's gonna cost you more in a normal environment than say if you're only locking in interest rates for two years. Um, so in a normal environment, a normal yield curve should slope up into the right, meaning that two-year treasuries should have lower interest rates than 30-year treasuries. A 30-year treasury, you know, normally should be something like four to 5%, and a two-year might be something like one and a half percent, for example. In the current environment that we're currently in, and this has been true since, um, July, since this July of this past summer, the yield curve has been inverted. And specifically, most people look at, they compare the two-year versus the 10-year treasury as kind of their measure of inversion. Um, since July, the, two, the interest rate on two-year treasuries has been higher than 10 years. That creates kind of that downward sloping curve instead of an upward sloping curve. And that's what's meant by an inverted yield curve. It's, an, it's inverted because of investor expectations of where interest rates are going. And it's typically been, I shouldn't even say typically, it has in every single case when there has been an inverted yield curve going back over, call it the last 50 years, every single time that it has happened, it has um, predicted the coming of a recession within the next 12 months. And here's why. It is because investors sense 
that future rate cuts are going to be necessary in response to an economic slowdown or a downturn. And so that is what they're pricing into that yield curve. And that is why they're predicting that 10-year you know, interest rates, which are reflecting the average interest rate that you will kind of experience in the market over the next 10 years, are going to be lower than what we're likely to experience in the next three months or six months or two years. And so that is what kind of creates that dynamic. So it's basically smart money, so bond investors, looking out across the time horizon and saying, hey, everything going on right now, the Fed's hiking rates because um, inflation is really high, it's gonna get inflation back down, but in order to do that, we're gonna have an economic downturn, and then the Fed is gonna be forced to cut rates in order to stimulate the economy again. And so that is why an inverted yield curve looks like it does. That is what it is telling us. That is what investors are pricing into that curve to create that, that dynamic. And that is why historically over the last 50 years, every time the yield curve has seen a prolonged period of inversion, as we've now seen for the last nearly nine months, um, it's always predicted um, the coming of a recession. So I hope that that helps a little bit. And when I'm done here today, I'll throw up another picture of a yield curve and I will depict very clearly what like the inversion means. But it basically simply means that short-term treasury rates, so the short end of the curve, meaning you know treasury bonds that have a three-month, a six-month, or a two-year maturity have higher interest rates than treasury bonds that have a longer-term maturity, like a 10-year or a 30-year. That is not normal, and that is known as an inverted yield curve. Um, so I hope that that helps. Okay, next question. What consumer behaviors would help curb inflation? So this is a really good question. Um, really what is stimulating inflation? You know, inflation has kind of lots of um, quips that are used to kind of put it in everyday language. Sometimes it's described as too many dollars chasing too few goods. So if you think about kind of where inflation started out, the government and the Fed flooded the economy with cash during the pandemic in order to prevent some massive economic fallout, right? There were stimulus checks issued, um, there were excess, um, not excess, extra unemployment benefits that were paid, and it pushed household incomes up significantly above kind of like the long-term trend line, and it boosted people's savings rates. At the same time, we had significant impacts to the supply chain. So remember like going to the grocery store and there being empty shelves, or remember everybody being stuck at home and trying to like remodel areas of their home or order new appliances or order new furniture and there were like six and 12 month backlogs. That is known as kind of demand pull inflation where there's a shortage of goods, people are flush with cash, they're trying to buy stuff and that increase in demand increases the price. Um, over call it the last couple of years, we've somewhat seen the supply side of things stabilize a little bit. So maybe now we have enough goods, but now we have another problem. Now we have a labor shortage. Because people were flush with cash, the labor participation rate is lower. There's also been this longer demographic trend of an aging population here in the US, plus with the benefit of inflation and asset price appreciation, some of the people who were older during the pandemic were like, you know what, peace out. My health, I'm not gonna put my health at risk. I don't need to work anymore. I have all this equity built up in my home. 
my investment portfolio, the stock market was up, you know, 20 plus percent the last two years in a row. I'm all set. I don't need to work anymore. Um, so you have that dynamic going on as well, which is creating a, a labor shortage or labor constraints. That tight labor market puts pressure on wages. So it's forcing wages to go up, which could be a good thing. However, when wages rise without any increase in productivity, the only way that producers can pay those higher wages is by raising prices. And so that can create kind of this inflationary spiral. And in our current economy, where services are the largest chunk of what we spend, the cost behind providing services, the largest cost there is typically labor. And so the more services we buy, um, the more labor is demanded, the more that shortfall has an impact and the more kind of you have this inflationary spiral. So how can we as consumers potentially help alleviate that? By spending less money. Um, by setting, you know, that's kind of what tends to trigger these downturns. Um, and that's why the Fed is raising interest rates as well. By raising interest rates, it makes saving more attractive than spending. It makes it more costly to borrow money to have more cash floating around in order to fund spending. Um, it makes people start to second guess, like, you know what, I'm not really sure how things are going right now. A demand is maybe starting to cool off. So instead of going out and buying a new house or buying a new car or going on a really lavish vacation, I'm just gonna hold on to this money because I am worried that I might lose my job this month um, or in the next couple of months. And so that is how consumers can start to help alleviate this inflationary situation. Unfortunately, there is a very high likelihood that the only way that inflation gets put firmly in check is with a downturn, is with a period of recession that kind of allows everything to get cleaned up and reset and then paves the way, the path forward for healthy expansion. What does healthy expansion looks like? look like? It looks like a stable price environment. It looks like wages that are rising because of improvements in productivity, not because of labor shortages and not because of government mandates, you know, stipulating that minimum wage has to be X, Y, or Z. Um, all of that lays the groundwork for a healthy path forward. Um, one of the things that also could alleviate the labor shortage situation is, you know, there should, there will be, and this is, I'm not, you know, trying to be unempathetic in saying this, there will be job loss in an economic downturn, but that job loss will allow labor to free up so that the labor market isn't so tight and labor to be reallocated to its best and most efficient purpose. Um, what happens in recessions is that businesses that are barely hanging on by a thread, that aren't innovating, that aren't growing, that aren't increasing jobs for people, that aren't increasing wages for people, they fail. And the failure of those businesses allow resources like capital, like labor, like um, real estate and plants and equipment to all get reallocated to other businesses that can make more use of it. Um, and so in some ways, and I think I kind of made this analogy on Monday, Think of recessions as a natural part of the economic cycle. The good news is that they are the shortest part of the economic cycle, but they lay the, it's kind of like house cleaning. It's kind of like 
cleaning up all the bad stuff and laying the groundwork for future expansion and growth on a healthier, more stable footing is the, I think the best way to think about kind of what recessions are and why they happen. If you wanna better understand, and I realize you were asking about kind of consumer behavior, but it feeds into why recessions happen. Because fundamentally, economics is about human behavior. And in the US, the economy, our economy as it's measured by GDP is made up of two thirds of consumer spending. So how we feel about the economy and our behaviors collectively as consumers. And when I say consumers, I'm talking about all of us, normal everyday people going about our household business, going to the grocery store, um, paying our bills, uh, paying for our kids' activities, going out to dinner, all of those everyday decisions that we're making about money in our own household, that represents two thirds of the US economy. So how the consumer feels about things is how ultimately kind of how the economy will perform. Which brings me to just highlight an, another note. Today, we will be getting February retail sales data. That's sort of the first leading indicator every month of how consumers are doing, how, what is the health of the consumer, how are we feeling about things, and how is that translating into action in terms of what we're spending. We need consumers to cool it in order for inflation to subside a little bit. Um, especially in the service sector. So the more that you can eat at home instead of going out to eat, the more that you can, you know, have a game night inside of your house instead of going out and, you know, going on vacation or things like that, the sooner things can cool off and inflation can subside and we can all get back on the right track to um, a healthier, more prosperous economy. So long-winded answer to your question, but I hope that that kind of helps paint that picture a little bit. Um, okay, mention on the podcast that Vanguard and BlackRock hold 15% of all stocks combined. Does this present any risk? So this is um, a reference to the interview I had with Eric Balkunis, who's the author of The Bogle Effect. What has happened is that you have these large asset managers who are sort of the leading providers of ETF index funds and um, index mutual funds, and they have amassed a significant portion of investor assets. And that's investors, be it like major pension funds, um, you know, us through our 401ks and our individual retirement funds, through brokerage funds, and those have become very concentrated in particular with the two major um, index fund providers, which are Vanguard and BlackRock, and then Fidelity and Schwab to a lesser degree. What ends up happening is technically those stocks are owned by you. However, they are custodied at Vanguard and BlackRock. And because most of us are passive investors who aren't gonna take the time to follow up on every shareholder vote, especially as an index fund investor, it becomes the management of that index fund's decision as to how to vote those shares. And so historically, it hasn't been all that problematic. They've been considered kind of passive. They tended to vote alongside of like whatever the board um, recommends. Um, they were never very activist kind of in their positions. They were passive investors, right? They weren't looking to rock the boat. That all changed back in, I want to say 2017 or 2018, when Larry Fink, who is the head of BlackRock, every year, and this had been going on for years, where he would write a letter published publicly 
to CEOs kind of on what he was hearing from investors, what his recommendations were for best practices as executives. Um, and in 2018, he started to take a more kind of activist approach around what we would commonly now describe as sort of ESG and DEI initiatives. And it kind of rocked the boat. And the reason it rocked the boat is because he's speaking on behalf of investors in his funds collectively and saying that they all support these things. And some of those investors are saying, well, hey, wait a minute, you're you know, pushing for lower emissions, you're pushing for, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever the initiative was that he, you know, outlined in his letter. Um, and that goes against some of the interests of our investments. And so we're not in, you know, putting our investments in passive index funds in order to be activist shareholders advocating for what, whether you support them or not, they are in some ways contentious discussion topics. And so you started to see some especially more conservative state pension funds, actually making the move to take their money out of those funds um, because they didn't like kind of the messaging and the way that their shares, which is representing their money, are being voted. And so that is one of the concerns of some of that concentration risk. There, I would say, is less sort of financial risk concern around like, you know, is Vanguard going to go away tomorrow or is BlackRock going to go away tomorrow? They're just too big at this point. And it's not that they're too big to fail. It's more that like they're too big in the sense that, you know, most of their assets are concentrated in the S&P 500. Um, if the entirety of the S&P 500 like went away, maybe they might go away. But if that happened, like we would all be in much, we'd have much bigger problems on our hands. And so, you know, they're not like this, they're not a Lehman Brothers 2008 situation where they've got like a whole bunch of, you know, assets that need to be marked to market or a bunch of like margin or CDS bets that are going to like wipe them out overnight. That is just not the nature of their businesses. Um, and hopefully if you read the Bogle effect, you would have that sense about Vanguard as well. Um, so the risk isn't necessarily financial risk. The risk is more like, power and influence and freedom of speech and those types of risks with that concentration of wealth and power where they're representing the interest of, you know, as they technically could merge together and say, hey, we represent 15% of your shareholder base and we want X, Y, and Z, whether or not that actually represents what the underlying dollars they represent are saying, if that makes sense. Um, so, I don't know if that answers your question or helps, but that's kind of where that data point comes from and like what are some of the concerns or risks around it. Okay, next question. Did Silicon Valley Bank and Signature do stress testing as other large banks do? So because they were under a $250 billion asset threshold, they did not face the same level of regulatory stress test on an annual basis that some of the larger banks do, like the JP Morgans, the Bank of Americas of the world. There are also some, as I'm finding out, certain classes of assets that don't have to be marked to market, despite the fact that they are marketable, actively traded securities that could also have masked some of these issues. And this is something I'm delving into a little more, so I don't wanna like 
speak beyond my knowledge, but it's something else that I've been learning about that could have masked a bigger issue. Um, one of the things is back in 2008, there was a whole host of regulations in order to make banks safer, more regulatory scrutiny. Some of that was repealed in 2018, particularly for smaller banks. Um, and so there is some discussion now, as you might imagine, of ratcheting all that back up again, with good reason, given kind of the ramifications of what just happened. So yes, they, do, they did have regulatory oversight, However, not to the same degree as much larger banks. And obviously we are seeing some of the ramifications and fallout from that. Uh, okay, so that was it for the questions that people submitted last night. I did see people ask a couple questions along the way. So let me just go back and make sure that I get those. Um, somebody, uh, TDF Honest Farming is saying, can you explain how dumb Roku was for having almost half a billion dollars in one checking account? So Roku is one of the kind of tech VC-backed startup type companies that was impacted with Silicon Valley Bank. And yes, some of these startups had significant assets concentrated at a single bank. Um, there are reasons to have concentrated assets with banks like relationships. So for example, when you have a good relationship with the bank, when you have a significant number of assets with the bank, as a former banker, we reference it as wallet share. So we know that, you know, if a company is this size, they have this much cash. And so we want to have as, you know, we want to be their pri primary banking relationship. And so in exchange for that, we might offer them more attractive offerings or services. Some of the things coming out are like, that SVB would offer founders like attractive interest rates on their mortgage and attractive personal banking options <clears throat> by doing all their business there. That obviously was a significant business risk. So they're taking personal benefits in exchange for significant business risk, but it was very stupid to have that much money all in one place, You know, no matter how big a business you are. Um, Someone is saying, will the board of SVB be held accountable for mismanagement? For example, donating 73 million to BLM. So that is not a fact that I personally have seen anywhere. Um, so I won't speak specifically to that. However, I will say that they are now under federal investigation with the Department of Justice. Um, in particular, they are looking at the bonuses that were paid out immediately prior to the fallout. Um, what I have read is that those were bonuses associated with year-end that were authorized by the board of directors. However, given the withdrawals that happened in 2022, you might question why they were still being paid out multi-million dollar bonuses. Um, but it isn't uncommon for bonuses to be paid out after year-end at some point during the first quarter. However, it still doesn't look, you know, the optics of it are not good. The other thing where the optics are even worse is the multi-million um, and shares that were sold just prior to the shutdown last week by some of these executive officers of the firm. Those are the things that the Department of Justice um, are looking into and investigating. I haven't seen anything specific about um, you know, donations to any type of charitable organizations or things like that. But I'm sure we will learn more in the days to come. Um, okay. Next question, how do we as consumers weather the storm of a recession and or come out better than before? This is an excellent question. And honestly, it's the same advice 
that I would give to a business that I would give to a consumer. Recessions are the shortest part of an economic cycle. On average, over you know the last 50 plus years, recessions last less than a year. They tend to last on average about nine to 11 months. Um, and in you know more recent times, because the government and the Fed have gotten more adept at responding to economic downturns, although I know people are questioning that in the current environment, um, but because of the actions that they take, they have become less severe and lasted shorter duration than historically. Like I know, you know, young people today feel like, oh my God, this is, we've lived through so many economic downturns. If you go back and look a hundred years ago, like recessions happened all the time, like every other year and they might last for years. Um, and it really wasn't until kind of that post-World War II environment where we had more, you know, where the US dollar became the world's reserve currency and we no longer had a gold standard that added volatility to kind of how our monetary policy behaved. Where we had established mission of the Fed, this two-pronged mission of stable prices and stable employment. Um, where we actually approved of government intervention and monetary policy in order to help alleviate and control kind of the, the impact of a downturn on the economy. All of those things have made recessions less severe and less prolonged. So that's thing to know number one. Thing to know number two is that's what emergency funds are for. You guys know I'm a big fan of like the All In podcast. So they've been telling their VC-backed companies for months, and this is part of why the SVB situation is even more painful, they've been telling their VC firms for months that they needed to preserve cash because this was going to be a downturn, they didn't know how long it was going to last, and they needed to make sure they had cash on hand to weather the next, call it 18 to 24 months. That if you could last, if you could survive, if you could meet your minimum payments, meet your payroll, um, and still be standing on the other side, you will be successful going forward. But if you don't manage your cash well in the current environment to be standing on the other side, then you know, you, you're setting yourself up to fail, essentially. In uncertain times like this, cash becomes king. Having money set aside to weather the storm in the event that you and for consumers, really, the biggest risk in an economic downturn is unemployment. It's job loss. Yes, there are unemployment benefits, but it can take a few weeks to, for those to kick in. They can also not cover the full extent of what your income was before. So having a solid three to six month emergency fund, and what do I mean by that three to six months? I mean, look at your monthly burn rate. How much money do you need every month to cover your bills? What is a bare bones budget? Can you take that list of spending and what could you eliminate to get it down to like the bare minimum? So things like, you know, shelter, insurance, transportation, food. Those are like the big four, right? How much would it take to cover all those? And do you have three to six months of runway set aside and saved to cover that in the event of, you know, whatever the worst case scenario would be, job loss or, you know, illness or disability or in the current environment in a recession, it's really job loss. If you work in a more cyclical industry, and if you work in a cyclical industry, you know you work in a cyclical industry. Construction is cyclical. Real estate is cyclical. Um, 
trying to think of some of the others that uh, energy is cyclical, things that have boom and bust cycles, things that have bigger ups and bigger downs than kind of the economy as a whole. Things that are less cyclical and more stable tend to be things like healthcare, like education. Um, if you work for the government, you tend to be a little more stable and secure. Um, then maybe you only need three to six months. If you work in a more cyclical industry, you might need more than that. Um, but having that cash set aside to weather that storm is what sets you up to you know, survive and then thrive on the other side. If you are in a secure industry and you have cash set aside right now, this is often when opportunities present themselves. If you look at the behavior of like the Warren Buffetts of the world, it's times like these that he makes his biggest investments because the uncertainty and the volatility, you know, when you have mark like when you have markets like we've had this week where people are like, "Oh, all the regional banks are bad and they all trade down by 30 to 60% in a given day." Well, reality is all the regional banks aren't bad. All the regional banks aren't worth half of what they were worth yesterday. And so people willing to do the work and with cash set aside can look and look through balance sheets and look through you know customer concentration risk and look through investment portfolios and be like, hey, this is the baby getting thrown out with the bathwater and this is a tremendous investment opportunity. And they buy in when the market has mispriced those assets. And then when things recover, they reap those benefits. So that's kind of the way um, to think about, you know, and consumers can do that too. If you're sitting on cash on the sidelines, when the market has these massive lags down, and I will say that I think we're a little bit early right now. So you're seeing a lot of volatility right now because there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, it was highly omniscient when I said like a week ago that the next two weeks would be very telling about where the economy goes the rest of this year. Um, I think we're in for probably a harder and wilder ride than anybody would have guessed certainly a month ago and even a week ago. Um, so maybe give it a little bit more time. But if you see the market gap down another 10% or 20%, that can present huge buying opportunities, whether it's to put money to work in your retirement portfolio or buy in just an index fund. Um, you know, what tends to happen with consumer behavior because it's psychological and emotional is we overreact in both directions. And so take advantage of those opportunities. That's how you weather the storm of a recession and come out better than before. Um, if you have cash and cash is king and you're able to ride things out, then you also have the assets in place to take advantage of those um, mispricings in the market that recessions bring as well. So that's kind of the way to think about it. Um, okay. I'm over the 30 minute mark. I hope that that was helpful. I'm gonna go ahead and cut it off here because I actually have to run to a dentist appointment. This is the week of appointments. Um, I will post the replay here to videos. I don't know what happened on Monday when I went to click out and do the thing I usually do to post the video. The whole thing like froze and it disappeared and I wanted to cry. Um, but if you missed the whole discussion on Monday about the banking situation, the replay is posted on my podcast. This will be, the replay for this will be posted here in my videos. It'll also, the audio will be posted in the podcast as well. Two things to watch that are coming out today, retail sales, which will give us an indication of the health of the consumer. Um, I imagine that things probably got a little bit worse in February. Things were a little better in December and January, but it, think, it seems like things are progressively getting a little bit worse. 
Hopefully we're seeing the consumers start to pull back because as somebody asked, how can consumers help in an inflationary environment? We can stop spending. Um, so that'll come out today. We also get the PPI, which stands for the producer price index. It is a broader measure of inflation. So the easiest way to think about it is CPI is consumer price index. PPI is measuring prices across all of GDP. So across businesses, across investment. So it's a wider measure of inflation is just the way to think about it. That also comes out today. So look for that in my stories. And then tonight also we'll resume our FFM book club discussion, um, talking again about the Bogle effect. For those who are new, the, that discussion will wrap up this week. And this weekend in my stories, we will vote for our Q2 book club pick. And so if you have book suggestions, you're always welcome to leave those. And I usually narrow it down to four and we vote on one to read as a group for the next quarter. So have a great rest of the week. Try not to stress about everything that's going on in the world. Know that your deposits are insured by the federal government up to $250,000 per deposit per bank. Um, you don't need to be shoving cash under your mattress. Um, anyway, I will leave you with that. I hope to try to be a source of factual, literate, financial literacy information to help kind of provide a sense of calm and stability through these periods of economic uncertainty. Try not to stress, shore up your emergency funds, be prepared in the event the economy slows down and you lose your job, but know that recessions are short-lived and they pave the way for the future recovery. Have a great rest of the week and I will see you guys back here live on Monday at 9 a.m. Thanks for listening to this Q&A replay. As a reminder, to have your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Monday and Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.